but Jerusalem won't have. There's going to be too many people, so you can't confine them inside walls. Um, well, what's the problem with the city not having a wall? No protection, no security. I mean, they didn't have, you know, problems with, uh, you know, bombs and things like that from the air. If you kept a wall around the city, you pretty well had a, a place of protection. So how is Jerusalem going to get protected? God, he would be a wall of fire around it. So, note three points here uh, as far as this first half of the vision is concerned. First of all, there's going to be this huge multiplication of the people of God. That is a typical theme of the prophets. Uh, that God's people are just going to grow. Part of that's by the inclusion of the Gentiles and the idea that Jesus attracts all this multitude of people to himself. Think of Isaiah 2 with the mountain being raised up and and the nations flowing up to the mountain. Lots and lots of passages do that. That's, of course, fulfilled in Christ, where people of all places, all races, come to him. And really, when you think about that picture of how God's people multiply, that also uh, makes us think about our mission. A passage like 2 Corinthians 4.15 for all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound in the glory of God. Our mission is to get the grace of God spread to more and more people. Paul talked about in Romans 15 how he was determined to pioneer new places for the gospel. He didn't like working where somebody else had laid the foundation. He wanted to lay the foundation. And you just see that um, passion in the New Testament for getting the message spread. We need more of that passion. We need to recognize that that the people knowing about the Lord and having the opportunity to join the multitude in Christ is a is a key element of, uh, of our, our work. A second point is that God's our security. He's the wall of fire. That probably goes back to God being the fire and leading them in the exodus and so forth. But he's the one we look to for protection and uh, the one we trust in in every situation. We don't need to try to figure out some means of providing our own security. He is our security. He will defend us. And, and then the other thing I want you to notice about these first five verses is verse five, I will be the glory in her midst. Now, remember, Zechariah is after the captivity, as they've come back. Do you remember in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, where God, uh, in a vision or whatever, brought Ezekiel into the temple, kind of reminds you of those wildlife programs where the guy's speaking really softly, so the wild animals don't, don't hear him, and they, you can see them in their natural habitat. Well, he sees what's going on in the temple, and it's horrendous. Some of the most horrible things you could imagine going on in the house of God, idolatry of all sorts. And then you see um, the, the presence of God, the glory of God, which was there between the cherubim over the ark, going out from the Holy of Holies, going to the doorway of the, of the temple, and then going out of the temple, out to the mountains east of Jerusalem, and on off. The glory of God left his people. 
That left Jerusalem, left the temple, just an empty shell. Their life had, was gone out of it. But God is promising to be the glory again in the midst of his people here. So that's an exciting uh, revelation. This is a very encouraging vision. Mostly thinking about what we have in Christ. As the people of God multiply, he's our security, and he's the glory that dwells among us. Thoughts and comments about those first five verses of this vision number three. Six to thirteen. Thought about flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad in the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake your hand over them, and they shall become plunder to those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. There is really a lot of good stuff in chapter 2. In 6 and 7, what does he tell them to do? <coughs> Escape to Zion from Babylon, the land of the north, Babylon. You don't want to be influenced by Babylon's lifestyle, and you don't need to be caught in the fallout from Babylon's judgment. So get away from Babylon, get away from the world, and be with the people of God. That's picked up on in Revelation 18. And then look at what he says in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. It seems to me the idea is that God is glorified when he judges the nations, when he judges his enemies. We don't often think of that as being something that glorifies God. We almost think of that as being something we kind of have to apologize for in God. And he's, he's a great God, he only judges people, but he's still good. But really, that's a glory to God. It's the righteous thing to do, is to judge the enemy nations. And notice... He sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. What's the apple of the eye? It's what's precious. Yeah, that's right. But literally, what's the apple of your eye? Yeah. And so, you know, what was going? What would happen? If, if somebody started putting their finger like they were going to touch my eye, what would I do? I'd close it and I'd probably get their hand away. I have the strongest eye reflexes of anybody I've ever met. I'm terrible. My mother has glaucoma, so I need to get that little puff of air in my eye every year or so at the eye doctor to make sure I don't have it. And it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hardly sting. I cannot keep my eye open for anything. Just knowing it's going to happen. I do everything. I can't keep it open. I cannot get drops in my eye. You just have to put it over my eye and then it will seep in. I cannot keep my eye open. You know, we are just so extremely protective 
even just uh, by reflex of the, of the pupil of our eye. Now he's saying that's how he feels about them. Anybody who messes with them, it's like they're messing with his eye, and he won't put up with it. That's why he punishes the nations that hurt his people. Do you remember what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Was Saul persecuting Jesus? Well, yes. <laughs> now, it wasn't like he saw Jesus or whatever, but, but I've illustrated it before. What if I start hitting you? Now, it wouldn't mean much if I started hitting you, but assuming I was a little stronger and I started hitting you, and you said, stop hitting me. I said, oh, no, I'm not hitting you. I'm just hitting your body. Well, you kind of take your body as a part of you, and you take that personally. You know, I mean, when, when Saul was hitting the Christians, Jesus felt it. They're his body. That's how sensitive the Lord is to how we are treated. You know, Matthew 25, that judgment scene. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me also. So that's really encouraging. He said, look, read verse 8 again. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So that, that's really encouraging. And then what does he do? Verse 9, For behold, I wave my hand over them, so that they will be plunder for their slaves. A mere hand gesture. And God plunders the nations. You know, he, they get what's coming to them. The plunderers are plundered. But here's another thing I want you to notice in this section. This is probably about as uh, clear a section for this as I know. I want you to follow who's who in this section. See if you figure out who's doing what to whom. I'll start in eight. Just try to figure out kind of who, who is talking to who and about who. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will plunder for, be plunder for their slaves. That, that you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Did you have a hard time following who was who? What do you what do you take from that? What does there have to be in that passage? A trinity. A trinity, I think. A trinity, yes, exactly. We've got the Lord sending the Lord. And, uh, you know, you clearly at least got two. I mean, th there's no other way to look at it. You know, then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. There's clearly at least two. The Lord sent me to you. That's not Zechariah. You, know, you can't read all this and think Zechariah is the first person here. 
So you've at least got a plurality that are God. That's just kind of a foreshadowing of what we see much more explicitly in the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there's lots of things that show that God was not just a single person, personality. I don't know what you use when you're talking about God. And obviously, when we talk about the nature of God, we're in over our head. But God is revealed to us as a plurality in some senses. He's one God, but one God made up of three persons or three, whatever you want to call that. And uh, the New Testament is going to be really clear about that, but, but you can't read a passage like this and not see that. You've got all those passages, even like uh, the Lord said, you know, let us make man in our image. Now, was that the angels he was talking to? We're not made in the image of the angels, are we? You know, I mean, even from the very beginning, it's like there's something more to God than just one personality. And so, and, and, and when, he, when he says, I will dwell in your midst, I think we're talking about Jesus. I mean, I think this is a messianic prophecy again. The many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and become his people, and I'll dwell in your midst. That's what we have as Jesus was became flesh and dwelt among us and continues through the Spirit to live among us. And many nations were joined. You've got that constant influence of, of how the many nations are going to come. You know, from the promise to Abraham on, why did God choose Abraham? Why did he choose the Jews? Just to bless the Jews and favor them? No. Through your descendant, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I, I mentioned to somebody last night, my favorite messianic uh, reference to that is Isaiah 19.24 and 25, which is just one of the most incredible prophecies in the Old Testament. Sometimes you read things in the Old Testament prophecies and you're like, did the Jews never ever read this, this book? But Isaiah 19, 24. And that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, get this, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. You've got such clear references throughout the Old Testament that God's people, Egypt, Assyria, Israel, the, the blessings of being a part of the people of God is going to extend to all the nations. You've got people from everywhere that are going to come and be a part of God's people. So that shouldn't have been such a shock when it was presented in the New Testament. In the New Testament. Clearly, you have more clarity. You have more detail. There are some unrevealed things that are that are made explicit in the New Testament, but the seed for all of that is in the Old Testament. Okay. Um, what else do I want to say about that? The Lord will choose us as his people. He's ready for action. We need to wait and uh, in expectation of what the Lord is going to do here. Just a really rich vision. This vision of the guy, the surveyor, who's going to measure Jerusalem, but can't because of its size. Thoughts and comments on chapter 2. Yes? So when this message was delivered, what do you think their initial response was? Did they understand it being messianic, or were they thinking of something that was here now? I don't know that. I rarely know what they would have thought, but... I think it's reasonable that they would have seen it as messianic. I mean, I think it's perfectly understandable even for them. They may not have understood exactly how the Messiah would be or whatever, 
but but they've got all that background of Old Testament prophecy. So if they didn't see it as messianic, they certainly could have. Other thoughts? Uh, the inheritance. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned it before from uh, the reference to Isaiah in verse twelve. The Lord will inherit Judah in this portion. Uh, I'm just still kind of wondering what what's the significance of that as opposed to any other descriptor that may have been used for. Well, it's really amazing at the value God gives his people. You know, we would sometimes think of we inherit the Lord, but this is really the opposite. The Lord, what what he, the present he gets, the inheritance he receives is his people. You've got that several times in Ephesians. And so it just shows you how much value he puts on us. He sees us as his portion, what the blessing that he receives. That's how much he loves us and cares about us. I think that's really cool. There may be something more that ought to be said than that, but that's that's what I see in that. Mike. I think so often when we think about the Lord of heaven and, and, and all that, we think about what we're going to receive. And it's all it's kind of all can't wait to get home and it's all true and glory and fulfillment. But the other side is God's pleasure is fulfillment is could be even greater. He finally gets all of his children through all of the ages. And that's it is inherited, but it's kind of hard to even fathom that. It's amazing that God would take joy in us. That he would want us. I think that kind of blows our mind, but that's really encouraging to know that. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Yes. When you read the first one, that many nations shall join themselves to the Lord. There, there's many scriptures but because of Jesus today, the Jews rejected everyone but themselves. How, how did they read passages like this and not see that? Uh, or did they see it as a future time, even beyond their day? No, I don't know that they did that. I mean, you wonder how they kept some books in the Old Testament. Jonah, for example. But I suppose they saw that as the nations would become Jews. They'd be proselyted and then join them. But still, it should be a lot clearer than that. I mean, there's, there's several passages that are just so clear. Uh, a couple that come to mind, you know, in connection with even like, as Gentiles, they worship God. Malachi 1.11 and Zephaniah 2.11 are two good verses along that line, too. Yes? When I think about the Jews' strong stand against what well, they had in New Testament against other nations, I think about Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I forget which one to be fair, but they had the trouble with marrying foreign women. Yes. And sometimes what potentially could be a right reaction on our part, we get carried away with. I personally think it's an example of that. I mean, it's hard to know, like you say, exactly what they were thinking, but um, they had that problem. They solved that problem. It took a lot to solve it. And they kind of, to me, they made sure they never had that problem again. Uh, going back to God protecting his people, we'll get back to what you talked about, that the Bible teaches us to pray for those who persecute us. If we understand anything about how God uses people, unless we really hate somebody, we'll be glad to pray for them. Because when they're persecuting a the Christian, they're messing with serious stuff. Namely, our Father. And so we should be glad to pray for those. 
who are doing anything to us because they're in a lot of trouble. And they need the mercy of God. Yeah, you appreciate Stephen, you know, praying for the forgiveness of those who were stoning him. And, and one of them, at least, Saul, was converted later, and that, that uh, prayer was answered. So, yeah, good point. Good thoughts. Other thoughts? Yes, Brian. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, where it talks about being silent before the Lord, um, I don't notice in the Old Testament that seems to be a really common thing that's told to God's people when he's acting on their behalf. Uh, like Exodus 14, 14, Moses tells the Israelites when they're crying to him about the Egyptians in pursuit, says the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And in uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, at the end of the verse, I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. And you kind of think like the relation between those things is they were seeing things kind of in the short term that were making them distressed and not see the hope and the promise that God was going to act on their behalf, which means that they didn't trust God. And kind of like in Zechariah, they were seeing their enemies who were hindering the work and it stopped. And so they weren't seeing the long-term promise. But if they trusted the promise, they would do what they had to do by faith in that promise. Because it's kind of like that to us too, is we'll, we'll stop working if we're paying attention to the short-term instead of the long-term. Yeah, when we trust God, we can be calm in stressful circumstances. You know, Jesus was asleep in the boat during the storm, and he was somewhat taken aback by the fact that his disciples were so alarmed. It all had to do with our trust in God. We can wait calmly and quietly when we really have confidence in Good point. Other thoughts? Yes. So, in verse 12, though, it says, the Lord will inherit Judah. As it forces the whole land into Jerusalem, both of those referring to Jesus, I guess Jesus says, you know, the line of Judah and Jerusalem is where the law came from. Yeah, I think referring to God's people in Jesus. Yeah. God, God's true Israel today. All right, chapter three, vision number four, the first half, one to five. <laughs> 